You are now listening to the Art of Thinking Smart podcast episode number four. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for uh, being with me here today. Really honored and always privileged to be able to speak with you. Delighted to be here, David. How can I help? Well, you know, you have such an immense wealth of knowledge when it comes to investing in the stock market, and, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to be really excited about when we start covering royalties, but your career spans starting from the early 1950s. You've been on boards of the New York Stock Exchange and many other uh, exchanges, and how about we start off with how did you get started in finance? What drew your interest? Uh, what kind of got your career you know, uh, um, in, in finance field started? Well, it was all by good fortune. When I got out of the Marines in 1954, I wanted to spend the rest of my life in Japan. And through the Japan Society in New York, I met a man by the name of Harold Bates, who had a brokerage firm called Bates & Company, which is now called Prudential. Wow. Um, And they, of course, misled me, as that's what Wall Street does. (laughs) and said, of course, Arthur, come work with us, and we'll send you to Japan. Um, And I did, and much to my surprise, because investment had been my family's business, I had found I loved the business, did well at it, stayed, prospered, and that's the story. So your parents did it as well, your father? My grandfather was one of the major brokers up until 1928 when he retired. Oh, right before the crash. Yes, he saw the crash coming. He and Bernie Baruch used to sit on a park bench in New York and commiserate with each other as to why no one else could see the crash coming because it was so inevitable. Wow. My father was a member of the Stock Exchange, and so in the early mid-50s when I became involved with securities, it was perfectly natural, but I had nothing, there was no family business. Mm. So I worked for Bates & Company and then several other brokerage firms before starting my own firm in 1967. That was Arthur Lipper Corporation. Guy one in, of, in, in New York. One of our clients, we only handled institutional investors. Okay. I do not believe that individuals should be making their own investment decisions. And they should either invest in a mutual fund mm-hmm. or use an investment management professional. Got it. One of my clients in Geneva was a group called Fund of Funds, Investors Overseas Services. And I became their principal broker, and I asked the founder and CEO of the organization, did they do any research in mutual funds? They were the largest owners of mutual funds in the world. And he said, no. I said, well, if I did some research, would it help me get more commissions from you? Mm. He said, couldn't hurt. And so we started doing research as to the performance of mutual funds, along with our regular security research and security trading business. Got it. So that's, that's a starter. And for our listeners out there, you know, right now, if you go to Morningstar, right now, that's what many people do. Uh, research for mutual funds, but Arthur was actually the original founder of analyzing mutual funds and helping people make better decisions. And so h- how did that come a- about? Well, let me, let me just correct something you're okay, saying, sure. David. Uh, there was a firm called Arthur Wiesenberger and Company, 
which indeed was the first fund, the first New York mm. Stock Exchange member firm to study mutual funds. Um, and they published a book annually, and in those days, funds reported every three months. Uh, we started doing research, which included getting the daily performance of mm -hmm. all mutual funds. And the funds were not very happy about this because they said, Arthur, you're going to destroy the fund business if you, fo if you focus investors' attention on performance. Mm. And I said, well, that's what you're getting paid a fee to do, is, <laughs> is to perform. And the difference is that we would never sell our service, which was only available for an agreed amount of commissions per year, to an individual. Okay. Because we did not think in individuals should be investing. So we only would provide the service to mutual funds, insurance companies, bank, trust companies, pension funds, that sort of thing. Morningstar, a number of years later, uh, decided this could be a good business if we sold it on a subscription basis mm. to individuals. So they took it to the next level they, of they what you did. They popularized I, it. I see. And that's fine. No, no problem. They've done very well. Uh, in the early 1970s, I decided that I no longer wanted to be a broker. I wanted to do investment banking, and I'd been... One of the house rules we had at Arthur Lipper Corporation was that no employee was allowed to own securities. Interesting. Publicly traded securities, because I think there's an irreconcilable conflict of mm. interest between somebody you're depending upon to protect your interest, having interests of their own. Right, right. And so we were a major firm. We had 300 people on New York office, offices in London, Geneva, Washington, Buenos Aires, Tokyo. Um, so it was very, very profitable. So I started financing privately owned companies. Okay, got it. And I want to go back to just the mutual fund side. Yeah. Uh, two questions that come across. One, you say that individuals should not pick the stocks. They should trust an investment professional. Why is that? From your experience, why did you find that that is what individuals should do? Because individuals almost always do the wrong thing. Okay. And as a result, lose money. They buy when the market is doing wonderfully mm. well and everything is going up, and they sell at the bottom when they get, when they get frightened mm. and everyone is selling. So they do exactly what, the opposite of what you should be doing. And... Investment management, investment research is a full-time job. Mm. Uh, if you're not prepared to spend several hours as a minimum reading about a company you're thinking of investing in, sure. reading about their competitors, uh, and now, of course, with Google, which has changed the world in terms of information, you mm. can find out so much about anything hmm. in at one sitting. But if you're not ready to make that sort of an investment, you really shouldn't be making investments as to which securities to buy. And, and that's fascinating because, uh, you know, I've shown our readers that the average return of individuals is less than inflation compared to the market because of the emotions that get in the way. So you are right that the average return of average investors are far less in the market because they let emotions get in the way. Well, I would also suggest to you the average return of institutions mm. is less than the rate of inflation as well. Wow. 
uh, and that is one of the major problems facing all in America is that the pension funds are underfunded typically. Right. And they have assumed actuarially that they will have a 8% annual increase in the value of their portfolio. Mm. And they've been typically coming in in the 3 4% range. Right. So there's a shortfall at the same time as there's an increased number of people will be claiming their pensions. Got it. It's a major, a, a major financial problem for which there's no immediate resolution except for uh, the state or the company or someone making up the difference so that the pension fund can meet its obligations. Mm. And so one thing that I also want to talk about is great points on having individuals trust professionals and so when you analyze mutual well, funds, I'm sorry. There's a difference between trust and respect. Okay, okay, please talk more about that. Uh, That'd be great. And both have to be earned. But the nice thing about in, in professional investment managers is that their record of prior performance is available. Mm. So you as somebody who has excess funds to invest mm. expects to have more in the coming years. Mm. You want to know whether, if you want to invest in a mutual fund or a closed-end fund, mm. you can get their performance records for since their outs since their establishment. Mm. Relatively few mutual funds perform as well as the stock market averages. Okay. Which is why in 1969 I created the first stock index fund. Okay, so you were you were there before Vanguard then. So a lot of oh, people think that John John Bogle. No, John was a client of mine. Oh, but, okay, wow. But um, and is a perfectly competent penny pinching guy. <laughs> okay. Uh, and his great claim to fame is that he keeps his cost low. Hmm. And he does a good job. Sure. Uh, at the time, he was with a firm called Wellington. Okay. In Philadelphia. Um, but yes, I thought it was perfectly natural that if funds didn't do as well on average as the averages, why not let people invest in a fund that only invested in stocks that were in the averages in the same percentage as they are in the averages that they would have a fund? Um, a couple of guys ten years later got a Nobel Prize for, mm -hmm. the, right. for the same idea. But yeah. on November 29th, 1969, we filed with the SEC the stock average, the first stock index fund called the stock average yeah. fund. And, when, so, and going back to the mutual fund side, uh, if the average listener right now is saying, okay, I got excess funds, I got, I understand that, yes, it's it's a matter of Finding someone I can that's earned my respect and trust to invest with them. What were the main things that you found on good mutual funds versus great ones, and obviously the bad ones as well? That's a very good question, David. I think before we get to that, however, an individual has to be able to define their own risk tolerance. Mm, right. Very important. Are you prepared to lose twenty percent of your investment? 50%, 100%, do you prefer not to lose any? Mm. Because once you define your risk uh, your risk profile, 
then you can seek investments that meet that profile. Right. Uh, you could invest wholly in government obligations if you don't want to lose m money in, a, in an absolute term. Right. Uh, if you're prepared to take risk and look for the Apples and the Googles and the Microsofts, then you're going to have to have a much higher risk tolerance mm. because investing in early stage companies uh, has a range of risks that investing in established companies do not have. Mm. <clears throat> so, one, you should decide do you want to invest in an industry-specific fund? There are funds out there that only invest in medical technology, mm, right, right. only invest in mining, only invest in consumer goods. Mm. Do you want to invest in a growth stock fund or a balanced fund? Right. Because there are times, rarely, but there are times when bonds are a better investment than stocks. Mm. And if you invest in a balanced fund... The theory is that you will have the best of both worlds. Uh, again, it goes to defining one's own risk tolerance. Got it. <clears throat> now, because the success rate of even investment professionals is less than desirable, one of the key principles of successful investing is diversification. Got it. You would not put all of your money into one investment fund. Perhaps you don't even put all of your money in with one investment manager. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> or if you do, and investment managers, as you well know, can make their own investment decisions mm. as to individual securities, or they can simply do what I'm suggesting, which is invest in collective investment vehicles, otherwise known as funds. Mm. Diversification is the secret to survival. Uh, I do not believe that a normal person's account should have more than 10% invested in any one security. 10% of, of the, their asset of base. The, in one security, meaning one stock. One stock or one bond. Or, okay. Uh, but... Uh, we're talking about a focus of risk. Sure. And the preservation of capital, particularly in an environmental, in an inflationary environment as we are now and will always be for the rest of our lives, I think, uh, is of much greater importance than most investors recognize. So really, the first answer is not to lose a lot of money. Got it. You've okay. got to be willing to lose some money, sure, but not, not a lot. And diversification is one of the clearest strategies to avoid total loss. Sure. And so diversifying is good. And as part of you know the Lipper, you see it on TV a lot, and that's now still very vibrant. Mm -hmm. This mutual fund is rated this way by the Lipper. Right. Uh, what 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 constitutes, you know, a great fund versus one that's not great? How how do you balance it out? And how do some of the listeners say, okay, I'm invested in this. How would they know they're not in a good fund versus one that they are in a good well, fund? Well, first let me highlight something. Sure. 
we at Lipper, and when my brother took it over, he continued it, and he, he then sold it to Reuters. Reuters is now a part of Thomson Reuters. But Lipper does not do a rank a rating of funds. Okay, okay. It does a ranking of funds by performance. Okay, I see. Okay. And it's a ranking of funds by performance for specific periods of time. Ah, I see. Uh, Morningstar will do a rating, which is really a prediction of future performance. Mm. And I don't believe that anybody has got a good record of predicting future mm. performance. Right. So the ranking will permit you to see how the fund management did in varying markets. Did they do better than the market when the market was going up? Mm. Or did they do worse than the market when the market was going down? Mm. And that's a, that sort of volatility goes back to the issue of risk assumption or risk tolerance. Um, I think you want a fund that has consistently done somewhat better than the S&P 500, okay. which is a much better measure than the Dow Jones 30, 30 industrial stocks. Sure. Um, I don't think it has to do 20% better. Mm. And I think you'd have difficulty finding a mutual fund that had that sort of performance. <clears throat> People who can generate that kind of profit, and they do exist, and they were my clients, mm. uh, are not interested in investing public money. Mm. Uh, they don't want to issue the reports. They don't want to have the bureauc bureaucratic requirements, etc. cetera. Uh, they run hedge funds. Sure. And hedge funds use leverage. And that is really the difference between a mutual fund or a closed-end fund, which right. is similar, and hedge funds. Mutual funds do not use leverage. There's mm. no borrowed money. However, individuals can buy mutual funds on margin. Right, okay. So the individual can determine how much, if any, leverage they choose to use. Sure. Um, it is vitally important for any investor to understand compound, the advantages of compounding. Mm. And a steady growth of something better than a market measure Mm. will, over a period of time, provide an outstanding return. Got it. And my brother, who, uh, with whom I'm very close, now writes a weekly blog, a uh, Lipper blog, and he is a great believer that all significant investment portfolios should be broken down into time frames. Okay. Stocks in which you expect to sell in the next three or four years. Like stocks yeah. stocks which you're prepared to hold for the next 10 years. Right. Stocks which you think you're prepared to hold forever. Got it. So the investment buckets based that, upon exactly, timeline. Perfect. Exactly. That's great. How important is the who managing the fund? Um, 
that varies from situation to situation. It depends upon how much authority the, the individual fund manager has. Okay. When we were actively in business, um, I would know when a fund manager was getting a divorce. I don't <laughs> wow. want to. I don't want to be in a fund that they're managing when they're getting a divorce because they're going to be distracted. Got it. Uh, I don't want to be in funds when managers have stress. Period. The there are organizations where the fund manager has relatively little authority. He can make recommendations to a board within his company. Got it. So you have to know what the decision-making process is in each of the uh, companies you're considering. Sure. The larger the fund, the less likely it is that an individual will have absolute authority in terms of uh, making investment portfolio management decisions. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Arthur. Now, what is what is your opinion on passive funds versus actively managed mutual funds? Well, I'm not sure what those phrases really mean. Uh, it is not unusual for funds to have a portfolio turnover of 100%. Mm. It is not unusual for funds only to have a portfolio turnover of 20%. It really depends upon the philosophy of the manager. Got it. Um, Berkshire Hathaway has a very small turnover because sure. Warren Buffett essentially buys things with a forever view. Right. Um, so an actively managed fund will create tax uh, tax issues for its shareholders mm. if it trades profitably. Sure. Uh, I think that by and large, again, I go back to find a fund that has done better than the S&P 500 mm. consistently with dividends reinvested. Right. And, and, and so kind of going on that, index funds, you know, John Bogle was a client yeah. of yours. Yeah. Index funds, you were the first one to start one of those yes. versus those that try to outperform the market. Well, that's an, that's an enhanced index fund, and I believe in them. Okay, so so your definition of... Because you yeah. can enhance a fund. You can enhance a fund by borrowing money in that fund. I see. You can enhance the fund by... Overweighting the stocks that you think are going to do better. Interesting. Okay. You can enhance a fund by owning puts to protect your your shareholders from a decline in the mm, value. Sure. I think that enhanced index funds are an excellent vehicle for many I, individuals. I've actually never heard the term in how enhanced index funds. Usually, people say actively managed funds versus index funds. John Bogle's theory are index funds will be better than actively managed or enhanced because of the cost. But what do you think of his philosophy in that matter? I described John as a penny pitcher, mm -hmm. and I didn't mean that to be critically, just a descriptive term. Um, when you're talking about a fund the size of Vanguard, right. Efficiency becomes very important. Ah, I see. Uh, in a smaller fund, the amount of 
that you pay out in cost is less important. Oh. Uh, but by and large, I think an enhanced index fund is a good investment for someone who believes in the economy. Mm. I see. And there mean. probably is no good investment for someone who doesn't believe in the economy. Okay. Um, so you're forced to be bullish on America if you're investing in stocks which are primarily active in America. Right. Now, increasingly, American companies, such as a Coca-Cola, right. Coca-Cola, I think, now gets 20% of its income from the United States. Right, majority of it from overseas. So you're not really investing in an American company in terms mm. of revenue source. Right. And more and more, that will be the case in larger companies as the world economy develops and has greater greater buying power. Got it, got it. So your recommendation for, you know, again, kind of going back to it, uh, individuals should not pick their own stocks unless they have a time or anything like wherewithal to do so. Unless they, they have the expertise. And expertise, too. But most don't. And, and well, I, and I, uh, let's... Doctors sure. who traditionally have been the world's worst investors <laughs> right, right. always thought they had insight as to pharmaceutical companies and sure. medical device companies because they knew the market. Right. Well, of course, anybody who was professionally in the investment business knew those companies before the doctors knew uh, them and knew them better. And got anyhow, it. I see what you so mean. So it hasn't worked. But if you do have an industry expertise mining, electronics, whatever, uh, you certainly, and believe in those industries, mm. you certainly can find investment managers who also have the same area of interest. And I suggest that that is where you should be. I see. Okay. So it's a very, right. You can use your experience and, and skill to determine which of the investment managers, et cetera, have a better understanding. Got it. So it's important, obviously, when you're looking at a fund, look at the investment manager, their expertise, their experience. Mm -hmm. Also look at, you believe in both, you know, the index funds and the enhanced index funds, the actively mm -hmm. managed has a place in the portfolio. So that, that's uh, really great with the experience that you've had. Now I want to kind of go a little bit further on to um, lo looking at, your career, you had a seat on, you were a member of the New York Stock Exchange. What does that mean for somebody uh, that's out there? Well, in those days it was different than it is today. I was a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange, San Francisco, Chicago, wow. of all of the stock exchanges in America, uh, many of the commodity exchanges. And you bought a seat, which is a membership which gave you an ability to trade through the exchange with other members of the exchange. Got it. In those days, the commissions were relatively high. They mm -hmm. were 60, the average New York Stock Exchange commission was 62 and a half cents a share. Wow. The average commission today is much closer to two cents a share. <laughs> okay. So the brokerage community has changed in that respect. Also, in those days, stock and commodity exchanges were essentially cooperatives in that the exchanges were owned by the members mm. and they hired the officers of the exchange and the clerical staff to provide the function. Got it. What happened, uh, started happening in the 80s, 
uh, is that the exchanges privatized and became for-profit companies. Okay. And the members got stock in those exchanges. Sure. And those exchanges now view the members as their customers rather than their members. I see. And okay. the, the, the activity from the standpoint of an investor really hasn't changed. The course structures have changed. But the, there are four or five major stock exchange holding groups. There's Omex, there's London, there's, there's a whole series of them, and about four in the world. And they own most of the important exchanges. Oh, I see. So, uh, so it's a very different business. But I was never on the board of the exchange because I didn't want to. I had the opportunity, but I didn't want to take the time. Uh, I was just a member of the various exchanges. And you were mentioning earlier, it cost you, I think, three hundred thousand dollars at that time. Yeah, but mm -hmm. the seats went up to several million dollars a wow. seat. And, <laughs> but it was a highly profitable business. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah, and the commodity exchanges, I tried to buy eight seats on the, what is called COMEX, which is the commodity exchange in New York. And when I went to the admissions committee board, uh, they said, Mr. Lipper, is Arthur Lipper Corporation going to go in the commodity business? And I said, no. Mm -hmm. said, well, why do you want to buy eight seats? I said, because I happen to believe in gold. Your exchange is where gold is traded. Ah. You're going to benefit if gold goes up, and I want to make an investment. Sure. Okay. So I'd like to buy eight seats, please. Oh. And they said, no, we can't do that. We'll sell you one seat. <laughs> so I made an enormous amount of money on the sale of that one seat God. five, six years later. Wow. But um, that's a, uh, an industry that no longer exists, and it's because of the computer Sure. The security uh, exchanges are a very different business. Right. Now, so, and then going on your career, what kind of, so you gave, Lipper's still alive, but your brother Michael took over, uh, and then you... And then he sold that out. Right. And so he is now an investment advisor to large family trusts and that sort of thing. Wow. Um, and I do investment banking, which is essentially the advising and financing of early stage companies. Right. And that's as chairman of British Far East Holdings, correct? Yes. Guy. And so, and now that you've gone into this, it's financing, helping incubate companies uh, from the growth stage to more maturity. And as part of that, that's where, and I am very excited to explain to our listeners, where Pacific Royalties has come in, uh, where you started that. And, and uh, I, I'm very excited to be, you know, helping try to get involved in this too. But can you talk more about Pacific Royalties? What were the basics of it, and and and, and the so what behind it? Okay, <clears throat> in the the part I liked least about negotiating an investment with the entrepreneur business owner was the valuation of the company. Mm. You need ten million dollars, fine. What will you give me for the $10 million? 20% right. of your company, 40% of your company, right? Right. And if you really believe in this company, why are you willing to sell me 40% of the company at a fraction of what you really believe will be its value five years from now? Well, I need the money. Right. Okay. So, in the 
early 2000s, I came to the conclusion that there was an irreconcilable and unresolvable conflict of interest between investors in privately owned companies and the business owner. The only reason to invest in a company is that you expect to sell what you bought some years later at a profit. Mm. So you want the company to make the highest possible report of profits each quarter and each quarter more and more and more so the company can either go public or be bought by someone who believes that that growth will continue. Mm. Well, that's unrealistic mm. because having owned a number of private, a number of companies, I know that in December you have a discussion with your CPA or your CFO, and the question is, how little profit do we have to declare? Sure. I see what you mean. All right? Right. Now, that's not in my interest if I own stock in the company. Right. So it occurred to me pretty simply that maybe I should buy a percentage of revenue, which is called a royalty. Mm. So I put together a plan, and I filed a patent, wow. U.S. patent, on the process of instead of buying 25% of the ownership of the company for $10 million, right. I would buy 5% of their revenues for the next 20 years mm. for the same $10 million. Got it. And let the people who were managing the company own it. So it's very and similar to just like music royalties in that sense, oil it's royalties. Similar, well, it certainly is more similar to oil, oil and gas and mining royalties, mm. except that oil, gas, and mining royalties are typically given to people who make a loan or who provide leases or who do something other than just providing cash. The royalties we're talking about are to finance companies and to allow them to grow faster and bigger because of the additional capital. Got it. So kind of going back to it, for when you look at a company, there's two ways they can get money historically is equity. Somebody invests money, but they sell part of the company. The other one is debt. But then if you have to have debt, you have fixed payments and... And, and negative covenants. Right. And, and it's also on your balance books and everything like that. So it could make your company worth less, I guess, um, in that short term. And then you've developed this third way of saying, well, instead of doing debt or equity, which has some cons, why don't we take the best of both worlds then? Well, it is the best of both worlds. Uh, however... Royalty payments are due irrespective of the profitability of the business. Mm. So if you have an off year, unless you've negotiated the royalty contract to read differently, you still owe the royalty payments. Got it. Now, in our patented approach, which we will be using in Pacific royalties in Hawaii, uh, the royalties are collected every day. Mm. Every time the company receives payment, from a customer, right. they are required to deposit it in a designated bank, and the royalty owner gets their percent, the agreed percentage of that revenue right, right there and then. So it, the royalty owner is never an account receivable from the company. It's an expense, right? No, it has the money. It oh, has right, the money okay, on, uh, on instant one. Right. So the, the, the biggest thing here 
where they have, uh, in a sense, they're the first ones to get paid. They're making income from day one as soon as they invest in versus a stockholder where you're hoping. You're hoping to get a dividend, but what you're really hoping is the value of the stock increases and you'll be able to sell it at a higher price. And so, and companies would like this because, and that means since they didn't give up equity, they have nobody on their board. Right. They're not told what to do. They're not forced to report the highest possible profits and therefore pay the highest prof- possible taxes. Right. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of advantages to both the royalty issuer and the investor. Mm. And so we're creating in Pacific Royalties um, one or more funds which will invest not only in Hawaiian companies, uh, in the royalties sold by Hawaiian companies, but in royalties sold by companies all over North America, and but with preference being given to companies which have a significant operation in Hawaii. So it's uh, Hawaii uh, preferred, but you're still going to be looking at companies nationwide. Because we only have one master. Right, right. Life is simpler if you define whose master is and who the servant is. <laughs> Our master is the investor in the fund. Got it. And so we, and we, are, the, we are the willing servant of that master. And, and so right now, as part of this, because it's starting to launch, it's picking mm-hmm. up quite a bit, bit of momentum. You travel to China, China's interested. And this has a potential because not only do you have funds, but in the future you could even have an exchange where people are buying and selling these royalties. Well... You hit upon a very important point, David. The reason that we can suggest as being fair 5% of revenues in return for X amount of money, that's a very high percentage of revenues. Mm. But what justifies it is that the royalty today is illiquid. There is no market for it. If there were a market for it, 3% would be a fairer percentage of royalties. Okay. Were the cost of the royalty to the business owner 3% rather than 5%, many more business owners would use royalties. I see. And many more jobs would be created. Many more factories would be built. Right. Everybody wins. Mm. And so, yes, we are very hopeful of creating a number of royalty exchanges both in the United States and in many areas around the world. And so for the listeners right now, this isn't available yet to the individual investors, but the goal is within a few years to be able to launch. Is it for only accredited investors? What is your vision behind uh, how uh, you know these could continue for the future? At the moment... investors would probably have to be accredited. Okay. However, the difference between that which justifies accreditation as a requirement and public investment is disclosure. Mm. And I see no reason why royalty-issuing companies should not make all of the disclosures necessary so that accreditation was not a requirement. Mm. That's the only the, the, the only issue of accreditation is you're not getting the same amount of information that you would get in a publicly traded company. I see, I see. And uh, indeed, uh, and this is a discussion that we will have at some point with the SEC, 
the need for a full display of financial uh, financial of a company is much less in a royalty because all the royalty holder is interested in is revenues. Mm. Yes, he'd like the company to be profitable, but what he wants to be assured of is that the company is sustainable. Right. And the company has to show some level of profitability. But as the business owner doesn't want to sell the company, they are perfectly happy to just discuss their revenues. And indeed, that's really all that should be necessary. However, that's a decision the SEC will make. Um, In the case of the fund, uh, it is to be determined whether or not we will require a disclosure of profitability. I see. Because once we dis- have that disclosure for one period of time, it will be necessary to repeat that forever. Wow. And so, uh, fascinating, I guess, kind of recapping for our listeners out there where this is a very, uh, has a lot of momentum behind this right now, meeting with government officials, pension funds who are looking at this as a, a new opportunity to bring in stable, potentially stable income, and it it would be lower risk simply because of the fact that they're the they're getting the money first, essentially before the company. So in that sense, they're going to be bringing down the risk that the investor has to take. Yes, and when you bring down the risk, you raise the question. Should this be done on a leveraged basis? Mm, so then you can even your return right. would be higher uh, to be determined sure. as to whether or not you want to either do that in the fund or make arrangements whereby the fund can be purchased by the individual borrowing. And wow. it depends. In the case of the first fund, it is likely that the only investors will be tax exempt investors, mm. pension funds, endowments. That sort of thing. Uh, Because there is a tax issue. The royalty payments by the company are tax deductible to the company. Mm. And they are ordinary income to the royalty holder once they have recaptured their cost. Got it. So if you're a tax-exempt institution, you in effect are getting almost twice as much yield as the individual. And, and, and what is your target rate, that the target return that you would look for in a fund like this? Again, we go back to a definition of the risk tolerance of the investor. Sure. If we're talking about tax-exempt institutions, mm. they, by definition, are risk-averse. Right. And what we are going to tell the institutions is that we believe we can generate double LIBOR, London Interbank Offering Rate, on an annual basis without too much difficulty. I see. So that would be substantially more than most of these funds are used to generating. And and it's almost, the risk is... It's much less. It's much less, and yet they're going to be getting it. So, I mean, I'm very excited about this. And one more thing. Right. The money will be used to create jobs. Right. So it's a win-win all the way around if this is done properly. It would appear to be. Right. So that's exciting uh, out there. And and for our listeners, you know, I I can go on hours with Arthur. I've spent a lot of time with him. Uh, But unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, cut it short here. But I would like each of you to... Come back to this site because 
I'll be working with closely with Arthur and give you more updates on the uh, royalty exchange and how, again, this isn't an offer to sell or anything like that. This is for informational purposes. But the biggest thing is I think that this type of financing mechanism and investment, it can be revolutionary where it really changes and is very innovative in how companies can get money and yet still maintain control and how investors can invest and lower their risk yet still be able to get income from day one. So I'm super excited to be able to uh, see this go through and really honored that Arthur, you spent time with me here, you know, just a wealth of knowledge, got started in 1954. Um, and, and his, in the finance world, his name, the Lipper name is so well known and that we're very honored uh, to have you here. Is there anything else you'd just like to say to our listeners? Sure, David. Th number one, thank you, David. Number two, I look forward to having future conversations with you. And number three, if your listeners have any questions regarding royalties mm. or, for that matter, any other matter that they would like my opinion on, and they send you a message, yeah, an absolutely. email, and you send it to uh, me, I will. I will respond to them through you yeah, with great pleasure. It'd be great. And so, and, and below the podcast, my contact information is there. And as always, I'll be getting back for you. Uh, to you and those that are members of our smart nation and join the art of smart money uh, one of the member programs we have a forum and i'm excited that that we'll have arthur as a guest on our forums to talk more about this stuff so thank you again arthur really do appreciate it and uh, i i guarantee our listeners out there arthur will be a guest back because we've got so much more to cover on future podcasts and future videos uh, for our members thank, thank you thank you david